Welcome to this week's ATP podcast, and before you know it, the first three rounds of the US Open have whizzed past. Hello, I'm Chris Bowers. I'm joined once again by our regular ATP podcast guest, Jill Krabus, the former WTA player, now commentator for TV and radio. We'll be looking back on the first three rounds and what's still to come, and hearing from a couple of the week's movers and shakers, as well as getting two players to discuss one of the legends of tennis. But first, Jill... What's been your standout moment of the first few days of the U.S. Open? My standout moment has been um, not so much about the matches, but about a couple of retirements that, uh, that have happened. I have to start with John Isner. It was a very emotional moment. I got to chat with him before the tournament started, and, you know, he was ready. He was definitely ready. He felt like it was time. And he was like, you know, I'm happy. It's it's the right time for me to retire. And I was telling him that it was it was kind of sad to see. But he was like, no, 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 I'm happy. And then all of a sudden, won his first round and then lost, ended up losing his second round to another American, Michael Moe. Um, fittingly, in a fifth set tiebreak, as John Isner, <laughs> as John Isner, as we know, play, loves to play tiebreaks. But it was um, interesting to watch him after the match. He did an on-court interview, and I have to say Michael Moe was amazing, gave him huge credit, just kept pointing to John Isner after the match that the crowd deserved his applause. And John got a little emotional, and it was it was um, interesting to watch. And that that's always touching because you put so much effort into your career. You work so hard, and when the time does come, it can get emotional. Um, so it was John Isner and also Jack Sock retired. Um, as well, this is his last tournament, and also Cabal and Farah, the doubles team, the Colombian doubles team, have had an amazing career, and this is their last event as well. So I always get a little emotional when I see players retiring because I know what it takes. But um, that's that's going to be my my moment of the week. Uh, it's interesting to hear Pam Shriver saying this week. I'm not sure that I trust retirements anymore because so many players come back. I suspect she was thinking of Bosniaki. Yeah, that's an ex- that's an excellent point too. But but is retirement for the moment? Let's put it that way. <laughs> I don't see Isner coming back, and I think given how difficult it was for Sock after that really difficult, he got to the ATP Finals in London and then had that awful year afterwards, and it took him so long to get anywhere near the top. I'd be surprised if he comes back. Uh, Cabal Farah, who knows? There's there's time in doubles because you can play so much later, but. Um, yeah, it, and I guess we see more of these at the U.S. Open because it's the final slam of the year. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's and people. I mean, players like to go out at these big events, at the slams, and sometimes it's going to be in your hometown if you have a tournament um, in your home country or your hometown. I, a lot of players choose that as well, but most of them used want to go out in a big event where all their friends are, where all their compatriots are, and everyone is congregated together. So. Especially for John and Jack, it is pretty fitting to be at the U.S. Open. And I bet for the organisers, it's a nightmare when you know someone's about to retire. Because what happens if they win? I remember when Agassi announced that the 2006 U.S. Open would be his last one. And he goes and wins his first two matches. And then everyone expected him to beat Benjamin Becker and he lost. So they were on standby for this celebration of Agassi's career. And it took until the third round for it to happen. And, well, and I also want to say one more. I mean, it's the women's side. One more Coco Vandaway um, is deciding to retire as well. Top 10 player. And so she's she's decided to call it quits as well. So another shout out for Coco as well. Let's go to the top and bottom of the men's draw. I mean, start with Djokovic. Uh, he's the number two seed. He cruised happily through his first two rounds. And then the five-setter against Laszlo Gera, which he... 
I don't know, he sometimes does this, doesn't he? He just drops the first two sets. He did it against Sinner at Wimbledon when he won the Wimbledon title a couple of years back. Do you think that's damaged Djokovic or do you think he just throws in one of those in the in the course of a tournament? You know, I just, I feel DeJury played so good. I was, um, I was watching the first couple sets and then I saw him come back in the third set. Um, but even when Djokovic was down two sets to love, you still feel like he can somehow find a way. And I feel like DeJerry senses that, everybody senses that he still has that in him to be able to come back. He's done it numerous times where he's come back from two sets to love down. And you just felt like DeJerry was playing so exceptional and he's got such a complete game. And so he can, he can hang with Djokovic, but it was about being able to sustain that physicality with Djokovic where you know he's just not going to get tired you know he can last as long as anybody and Djokovic said you know he he went off the court after the first two sets and he's done this in the past where he's talked to himself in the mirror and he said sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't and in my opinion the majority of the time it works for Novak um, but he just he just somehow is able to flip that switch and at this point in his career it's so often that he's able to come back that now it's almost the experience takes over for in both players' minds sometimes where DeGeri knows he's not going to go away. All his opponents not, knows he's not going to go away. And that, for me, is a factor in so many of these matches. And Novak knows he can last. And it's just having that experience of being able to do it so many times. Yeah, he's aware that people are playing the reputation as well as the player. Um, it's, it's also interesting that he's starting to talk about his age more in on-court interviews and post-match interviews. You know, he talked about, oh, I'm going to have to get this 36-year-old body back into shape for the next round. I mean, I, I can't help feeling this is all part of the strategy. He wants to put into opponents' minds, oh, I'm playing a 36-year-old. But he's won a major at 36. Nadal's won a major at 36. In fact, in both cases, it's Roland Garros, which is probably the most physical of the four majors. I mean, to me, Djokovic is still as fit as ever. And therefore, yeah, he, he can afford one five-setter in the course of a 14-day a tournament. Yeah, you know, I think um, I think he's not afraid to talk about it. I think as you get older, it can become a factor. And maybe he's being very open and honest about stuff he is feeling as he gets older as a 36-year-old. So things do change. I mean, as you get older, it's, there's a potential that you will get... Um, you know, just a touch slower and all those small details make such a difference in matches. It's those little things that can be just off or, you know, maybe not as sharp that can make a difference in these matches. So I think him being very open about that and very aware, I mean, he's one of the most aware persons about everything, his body, he's so meticulous about everything he does that he's not afraid to talk about it and voice and say, okay, you know, I am 36. Everyone knows I'm getting older. Everyone knows that these things can happen and things slow down. But there's no way that he's not on top of it. I mean, he's so on top of knowing everything that he's doing. And if he feels any sort of thing happening as he gets older, I can't imagine he's not taking care of it immediately. Okay, so let's go to the top of the draw. 16 years younger, Carlos Alcaraz. He's gone quite quietly so far, aided by a retirement in the first round. I mean, I suspect that sailing under the radar will quite suit Alcaraz. 
Um, yeah, I don't know if he's sailing under the radar. I think it's almost like everyone is expecting him sort of to go through, which you can understand why number one seed, number one in the world right now. And But coming in as a defending champion can somehow can somehow change things. I mean, it's a different feeling. It was the first time he ever won his Grand Slam last year here. But having spoken to him a few days before the tournament, you know, he, he said he's not even thinking about that. He's, this is a whole new tournament for him, a whole new year, and he's taking it in stride. And I feel like you can see it on, on the court. He's, he looks very relaxed. He's doing his normal smiling where he looks like he's having fun. And, and um, watching Juan Carlos Ferrero in the stands, too, I mean, they have such a good rapport with each other, and he's, they've been nothing but positive. And even off the court, they're playing games. Everything just seems so relaxed. They're in the lounge playing every game they can get their hands on, and they're just having fun and enjoying the moment. And that's why I feel like you, he appears so carefree on the court as he's having that much fun off the court as well. His family's here. Um, and so he's just got such a good support team. And I, that makes a huge difference coming in as trying to defend your title and just to ease that sort of stress and, and pressure. And I, I think he's looking fantastic. Well, we're still on course for a Djokovic-Alcaraz final, although I do have this feeling that Sinner could do some damage to Alcaraz if they get to meet in the quarters. If we look at the other players who've had a week that they'll remember, regardless what happens from here on... Um, I've picked out five names. Stricker, Arnaldi, Zhang, Goyo and Hijikata. I mean, what fantastic weeks they've had. It's been very exciting. I always This ha- always happens in slams, in my opinion. You always have these names that are able to make that push and have a great week. And yes, all those names, I completely agree with it. They've been so fun to watch rise. Um, Stricker, you mentioned, uh, he's always been one. Ever since I saw him at Next Gen last year, he's always been one that I felt like had a really great game um, and just has that power. And he just switched. He just got a new coach. Just started working with Dieterman, and he said that's been a huge impact in his um, the way he approaches everything. Much more professional. He's now more into diet, nutrition, just the small details of taking care care of everything off the court, which has made a huge difference. And it has. I mean, he played two five setters in a row, and was able to get through. Hichikata has been a great story. He went. He went to college. He's been fun to watch. Goyo, I mean, everyone you, you've mentioned, it's been, um, it's just been fun. And I always love to see which guys are going to make that breakthrough. I asked you for your standout moment of the week. My standout moment was actually Hijikata. Um, and it's, it's a slightly weird one. Um, he had that first round win over Pavel Kotov. Um, four sets, really feeling great with the world, comes off court you said he was at college. He was at the University of North Carolina. And on that very day that he was beating Kotov, there was a fatal shooting. One of the um, lecturers, one of the members of faculty was uh, um, fatally shot that day. And he came off and his, his girlfriend is still at the University of North Carolina. And he said uh, he had he had the decency to say, look, I've just won a tennis match. That is nothing compared to what's happened. And I just I, I love tennis as do you but it's also important to remember it's a game and I just love it when players have the presence of mind of course you we understand why they're excited about wins we understand why they get irritated about line calls but we always have to remember the big picture it is just a game and there are people starving uh, people thirsty because of lack of water there are people dying in war zones 
we remember that actually it's a game. And I loved Hitchikata. I, I interviewed him after he won the Australian Open doubles title earlier this year with Jason Kubler. That was a fantastic moment for him. And I love the fact that at a moment of great triumph for him, he is able to say, look, this doesn't count for much. One of the lecturers at my old college and my girlfriend's college has been shot dead. So that that's my standout moment, even though it's not really a tennis moment. Uh, just a word about Arnaldi, because, you know, it, it, I, I pride myself on knowing a fair bit about tennis. And then I saw him win his first round match. And I thought, oh, who's that? is he a qualifier? Has he got a wild card or something? And I looked him up. He's 61 in the rankings. And yet I know. <laughs> I've never heard of him. And I sort of shouldn't admit that. But um, it, it just shows you the strength and depth that a player can sort of almost come from nowhere. And, and yes, he'll be well inside the top 50 after this US Open. But what a great story. He's just recently settled in, uh, in Monte Carlo with his girlfriend. But uh, great story. Well, he was he was at Next Gen as well. Actually, I saw him at Next Gen last fall. But you know, Chris, what's impressed me about these guys too that have maybe not been to the stage of a slam before is Arnaldi as well as Stricker getting through in a five set match. These are the first time really that these guys are experiencing that stage. It is not easy to get through a five set match, and the fact that they've both been able to come through in those moments. In five sets, I mean, that says something huge as far as going forward. But I feel like you never know how you're going to respond when you haven't been in those moments that much. And they've both done a great job. So, yes, plenty of new names making their statement in the first week of the US Open. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Available on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn and ATPTour.com. One of the breakthrough players last year was Francis Tiafo, although he conveniently overlooked the fact that he had reached the fourth round in 2020 and 2021. Now, for the fourth consecutive year, Tiafo has reached the fourth round at the US Open, and that consistency is paying off with a place in the top 10 in the rankings, an achievement he told Jill he's immensely proud of. It's just something I've worked really hard towards. I mean, I think there's only two things I really want to do in this game, and, you know, that's to win a Grand Slam and to be top 10 in the world. And... You know, to, to almost to be halfway down there is, is, is incredible. So now I just got the eyes on, eyes on the prize for that one last thing. And yeah, cause I think every week, it's, every week brings its own, you know, challenges. Um, you know, some weeks you enjoy, some weeks you don't. Obviously being home, I really enjoy being here. But I think every week is just great for me. It's an opportunity to, to take the game to the next level, you know, play at the highest level um, and enjoy a city. I mean, I'm... I'm a guy who just really enjoys what I'm doing. So, you know, it's not an extraordinary for me to be out here, you know, generally. And if we're, we're going to be traveling 30 plus weeks a year, I might as well enjoy myself. That's kind of how I, I look at it. Obviously, sometimes are better than others, but I think it's all about how you look at the glass. And how do you bring that joy when you do have those challenging moments, like you mentioned? I think perspective. Um, you know, I, 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 no matter how bad I'm playing or whatever the case may be at that specific time, or, you know, things aren't going as well as I maybe would like. I'm still, I mean, the perspective piece, I'm still so much further than what I could ever imagine, right? And I still have the opportunity to change that and make it into a positive. So, I, again, it's all about how you look at the glass. I mean, we can sit there and, and cry and moan, but, you know, nobody cares. It's an individual sport. Um, you got to get yourself out of the mud. I mean, you know this. I mean, you play for so many years. So it's one of those things. Um, don't be the reason why you're not doing X, Y, and Z. The inimitable Francis Tiafo. Jill, I, I just love that sense of taking responsibility. Don't be the reason why you're not doing something. 
and I guess that's why he's making the progress that he is making at the moment. Yeah, I would 100% agree with that. And that's something that he's been working on for at least a couple years, I would say, is is taking more responsibility with everything, not only on the tennis court, but off the tennis court, which is huge because everything you do off the court translates to on the court. So it could be something as simple as making sure your rackets are at the stringer on time. But just those little things, because being on the tennis court on your own out there is all about decision making. And you have to be able to take responsibility off the court to be able to have that just a little bit more confidence to trust yourself in those moments. It sounds little, but it is a big deal to be able to go out there and be like, okay, I've made these decisions off the court. I'm taking responsibility. And it does translate on the court. So he's done a great job. I love the fact that he sets goals for himself. That top 10 was a goal. But he's not stopping there. He continues to talk about, okay, what's next? What's next? And he... Chris, as you know, loves this atmosphere here at the Open, loves being on the big stage. He soaks in the crowd. He loves the energy out here, and you can see it. And he's just really enjoying himself and playing really good tennis. Yeah, I'm impressed with the way he's handled the first week here, given the ranking points he has to defend. Semi-finalist here last year, especially that really fluctuating match he had against Manorino, which I suspect a year ago, certainly two years ago, would have got away from him. Um, But you heard him say there in the interview that there's two things he wants to achieve, to win a Grand Slam and to reach the top 10. Well, he's achieved the second of those. He's in the top 10 already. Can he win a Slam? And you see, I'm left asking myself, does he really believe or will there come a point where he doesn't think he'll quite do it? I mean, if he gets the semi-finals again, the chances are he'll play Djokovic. If he's up against Djokovic or Alcaraz in a final, does he really believe he can beat them? And that for me is the question. Well, I think that's a question of everybody against Djokovic, isn't it? Um, yeah, but I, you know what I mean? He just sort of, um, he, he talks a very honest game about how he's never quite believed he belongs up there. And Wayne Ferreira has taken him to a new level of belief. But there's that extra step, isn't there, about winning a major? But I, I think that is the first step is is being aware that maybe that belief wasn't there. And I feel feel like as soon as you can embrace that and accept the fact that maybe that wasn't there for you in the past and that's something that you've had to work on and improve, I really, I feel that's already a step forward in the right direction. That's already a step forward of being like, okay, that wasn't there for me, I need to work on it. And so those small steps are what's gonna get you to the phase where you do, as soon as you step on the court in the moment to win the match, that's where that belief comes from. Well, if Francis Tiafo is hungry for success, his good friend and the other American in the top 10, Taylor Fritz, is just hungry. Well, he was when our colleagues at ATP Uncovered caught up with him for their series on what the top players like to eat. I mean, what a pitch. Relationship with food, it's it's not too bad. I think it it definitely changes a lot when I'm at home versus traveling playing tournaments. I think when I was younger, I definitely like would would eat a lot and put myself to the point of like painfully full. But now I think I understand more. Just you know, eat eat, eat a, a healthy amount of food. Sometimes I'll just go down to breakfast and get like a, an omelet and like a omelet bread stuff like that. And then sometimes I'm kind of gonna stay in bed a bit. I'll just order in and get like a coffee and like a breakfast sandwich, something like that. 
when I'm at home, I, I, I stick to pretty much the same thing. Like I have egg whites, I have the occasional like, I guess unhealthy breakfast that I get to enjoy when I'm, when I'm home. I love having uh, breakfast burritos when I'm home. That's like something that I can't really get uh, elsewhere. For lunch, I normally have like a chicken and rice, a sandwich. It's a big difference in diet between like when I'm like getting ready for a tournament and when I'm like kind of just like chilling at home. Like I let the diet be way more lax when I'm home. But so one thing like I'm always trying to get enough of like as an athlete is like just protein all the time. I have these these dried beef sticks that I travel with. They're great. They taste amazing for like the ingredients and how healthy it is. You wouldn't expect it to uh, be as good as it is, but I'm, I'm having those all the time to get that extra like protein kind of snack. I'll have the uh, like the the goo like packets for like um, energy. It just gives you like um, some carbs and some uh, sugar, caffeine, just like stuff to keep you going. I do a lot of Uber Eats. I'm not gonna lie. I think if Uber Eats is, is on the table, why limit myself to uh, the room service menu when I have all these all these options? I definitely like to stay in after a long day. I don't like to sometimes use the energy to like you know go out to dinner if I don't have the time. So I'm I'm a big Uber Eats guy. I'd say my go-to's for dinner, like my three ones would be like steak and like mashed potatoes is like a, a go-to. And then maybe like a Japanese getting like rice and, and chicken is another go-to. And then maybe like a Italian getting a chicken and pasta. I'd say those are like my three like go-to's before like the night before a match and stuff like that. What do you treat yourself? In and out, immediately in and out. When I won my first two, Challenger titles ever. They were in California. I celebrated it in and out um, after those ones. So then when I won Indian Wells, I felt like it was it was only right to go to In and Out as well. Cheat days always happen when I'm when I'm home and I don't really have any like upcoming tournaments. I just get back from a trip and I'm really like I'm missing all of that like, food that I just like love when I'm when I'm in the States. I might go for I might go for In and Out. I might go for Chick-fil-A. I might go from like a, for like a breakfast burrito or a McDonald's breakfast. Those are probably like my top options when it comes to a cheat day. I'm gonna go for one of those things for breakfast and then one of those things for lunch and then I'll probably try to clean it up for dinner to kind of get the, get the ball rolling on, on, on being healthy again. I think my favorite food at a tournament is Tokyo. The quality of the meat and like the steak that they can do in uh, the Tokyo is, is great. Noodles, rice, kind of just the food that I like. They, they kind of they do a great job with it. Thanks. Thank you. Taylor Fritz talking about what he puts into his body. Now, okay, Jill, first thing we're gonna to have to do is a bit of translating. Did he say breakfast burritos? Uh, or? Well, I mean, do you know what breakfast burritos are? Yeah, of course I know what breakfast burritos are. They're awesome. What are <laughs> I they? I love breakfast. You don't know what a breakfast burrito is? No. Oh my, it's a, it's, do you know what a burrito is? Yes, I, mean, I love Mexican food, but the idea of Mexican food for breakfast Oh my God, it's amazing, Chris. Breakfast burritos are so good that I end up wanting them for dinner as well. So it's just basically a burrito, but instead of having your chicken, beans, and whatever else you put in your particular burrito, you'll have scrambled eggs with uh, like roasted potatoes, and it's so good. Oh, so it's a cooked breakfast, but in a burrito. Yeah, it's so good. Okay. And I would get like eggs and potatoes and avocado. It's amazing. Okay, thank you. Um, now, my next question is, what's in and out? Is that some sort of um, 
American it's a burger joint. It's a, a burger, burger joint. joint. Okay. Yeah, right. it's a it's a very famous burger joint on the west coast of the United States. Thank you. Okay, it, it's it's um, as Oscar Wilde said, we are separated by a common language. <laughs> so uh, it's it's good to know what he was talking about in those because I had no idea what In and Out is or and and breakfast burritos I might have worked out, but the idea of having Mexican for breakfast, but very good. Now getting back to the serious stuff here. I'm struck by how many of the top players, you know, we've heard a few of these on uh, the ATP podcast over the last few weeks. I'm struck by how many of the top players have a very meat-based diet. Now, you know, we know that Djokovic is something of a, well, what is he at the moment, a pescatarian, a vegan. But a lot of them do eat a lot of meat. Is this reliance on meat something that's based on sports science or do we just get to hear from for want of a better phrase, growing boys who've become seriously athletic men and therefore they are, they've just grown up with meat and therefore stick with meat. I think it has to do more of the fact that um, a lot of players feel really good when they have a lot of protein in their diet. So for me, it strictly comes down to the protein. Um, Cause we, I mean, my coach and I did research on that all the time and having um, what worked for me better was having protein the night before rather than a carb filled dinner the night before and I think the protein just gives you so much energy so I don't necessarily feel it's focused so much on the meat in particular it's just about making sure you have enough protein in your diet that's interesting because he talked in there about egg whites and uh, I was thinking at first does he mean the whites of an egg but I know the German word for protein is eiweiß which is you know the white of an egg so I guess that, that that's emphasizing the fact that protein diet is that the current fashion or is that based on on nutrition i mean you know if you if you've looked into this is is protein highly recommended i think so well i since i've known for the last couple decades yes it's been a lot about protein but but you know it's it's very individual based i mean there are some players that don't want the heavy carbs right before they go onto the court and there are other players that prefer to have you know, the carbohydrates for the extra sugar before they go on the court. I th- it also depends on your body type, you know, how you respond to the sugars, how you respond to protein. There are so many, I would say there's a lot of athletes that, um, y- you know, they're all trying to get the little bit of edge. I mean, it's worth getting blood work done to know how your body reacts to proteins and different stuff. Like, I mean, it's all so science-based, but my first thought is that most of these players are trying to make sure they get an adequate amount of protein in their diet. Well, that's interesting because it takes me on to another question, which is do players change their diet in the run-up to a match that might go long or is a long match all handled through their drinks, which we know have different minerals and electrolytes for each set of a long match? I think everyone is extremely prepared. They probably, that's why you see them bringing um, their drinks onto the court with them, their mixed drinks onto the court. So a lot of it would be electrolytes. A lot of it might have salt in it to make sure you're not losing it because you lose so much salt during a match. So they put salt in their drinks as well. It's about having the, whether they have like the energy bars, energy gels, whatever they have, but very, very prepared to be ready for a quick match or a extended long match but they're all the athletes are thinking about all this stuff so they're very well prepared with everything they have in their bags well if it comes to a fritz Djokovic quarterfinal as it well might i'm sure both players will be in optimum nutritional condition you're listening to the atp tennis radio podcast
We've looked at Francis Tiafo and Taylor Fritz, but there are two other Americans still in with the chance of going deep in this US Open, at least they were at the time we recorded this podcast, Tommy Paul and Ben Shelton. Paul was a semi-finalist at the Australian Open and three weeks ago in Toronto, and he was runner-up this year in Acapulco and Eastbourne. Standing between him and a place in the quarterfinals is Shelton, the man Paul beat in the quarterfinals in Melbourne in January. That was very much Shelton's coming out party. So how is young Ben, the son of the former top 60 player Brian Shelton, adapting to life at the top of the game? A question put to him by Candy Reid. It's been crazy, you know, my life uh, changing from being a college kid and and living in one place all the time to living in hotels uh, around the world and being on planes every week and seeing all these uh, new places. But I really enjoyed it. And now, of course, you've got your dad by your side full time. Yes. How is that going to change things for you? Yeah, I think that he's a great resource and uh, really important to my development and, you know, my game moving forward. I think that he helps me uh, with a lot of small things that that you know are because he knows me so well and because he knows my game so well so to be able to have him here knowing that you know he always has my best interest at heart and uh, helping me every way he can it's been a, a huge plus I actually first met your dad when he was the head coach of the female program at Georgia Tech right and then of course you moved to the University of Florida where you absolutely thrived mm-hmm. but I believe it was your sister who was the tennis player and not you when yes. you were growing up Yes, I, uh, I was really into other sports at a young age, especially American football and uh, a little bit of baseball and basketball. But, um, yeah, I, I started a, a bit late in my um, serious tennis career <laughs> when, I, when I started, you know, training and competing in tournaments. I didn't have, you know, the normal uh, development or process that many tennis players have, but uh, here we are. It shows there's more than one way to do it, isn't there? Yes, for sure. And you won the NCAA uh, title at University of Florida as a team, and then you won the individual. And then after turning pro after your second year there at the University of Florida, you went on to have that great run at the Challenger in Arkansas and said you believed in yourself a little bit more. Do you remember that? Yes, yeah, I think that... You know, it's really important for me to be able to, uh, you know, ride a good wave sometimes. Um, And, you know, when I have one good tournament or, you know, a great end to the college season, to be able to take that into my summer right away uh, was really important for me and helped me a lot. So uh, I was really glad to uh, be able to uh, keep that momentum going into the summer. And uh, I think that that's something that I'd like to try to continue on the ATP Tour, you know, following up good weeks with with great weeks um i think that it's also important to not also ride the wave on the negative side but be mm. able to have a short-term memory and, and and switch things quickly so it's a tricky balance have you always been good at that sort of blocking off the negative and thinking about the positive yeah i think i've done a fair fairly good job um i think it's definitely something that i struggle with short term just because i'm very critical of myself Um, You know, I want to get things right. I always want to develop, so it's easier for me to get frustrated with myself. But um, I think that I've done a better and better job lately of letting things go a little bit more quickly and turning the page. And the results have been coming thick and fast. You won three consecutive challenger titles in November. That's when you broke inside the top 100. Players don't usually reach the top 100 as fast as you did, not by a long shot. How do you think you did it? 
Yeah, I'm not too sure. I, uh, <laughs> I think that it was important that I didn't focus on the results, but more on you know how I wanted my game to move forward. Uh, I definitely had some goals for the end of the year, top hundred being one of them. But you know, I'm not too concerned with my ranking right now or defending points. And and I think that it was really easy as someone who hadn't turned pro yet or just turned pro and a young guy on tour to play with uh, with <laughs> not as much on the line, um, play freely. And I think that that's something that even though I'm a pro now and uh, I belong here, I think that it's important that I continue to have that mindset and continue to play that way because that's where my best tennis comes out. And you've got such an explosive game, haven't you? A huge kick serve. You've got uh, ability from all over the court and your dad said you haven't even really scratched the surface. Do you think that you can get that much better from where you are now? I, I really do. I think that, you know, I'm, I'm doing a lot of things well on the court now. I think I can do a much better job at, you know, putting it all together and becoming a more comp- complete player and uh, doing the right things at the right time. You know, I think that there's, you know, glimpses throughout matches where you, you see that, Oh, okay, I can I can do that. I can hit this shot. I in this situation, I'm I'm really good at this, and uh, I think that it's con- it's going to be important for me to continue to push myself forward and move forward and keep developing and not get complacent with where I'm at because uh, I I know that you know with with hard work I'm, I'm gonna com- I'm gonna uh, keep improving. What has surprised you most about the ATP Tour? Um. You know, I think I think it's been surprising for me just how full the schedule is and how many weeks there are. Um, you know, you don't get as many breaks as you would think out here, and it's always go, go, go. And I think it's important to, you know, take training blocks sometimes, <laughs> and as much as much as it hurts, uh, skip some some weeks and let your body rest. Uh, I've played a lot of tournaments and matches this week. I mean, this year because I want to get used to the tour. I want to know or figure out what I like and what I don't like. So I think it's been great for me to play a lot of weeks. And, and I've learned that some overplaying it sometimes isn't, isn't a great thing. And, and sometimes it's really good to get matches. And you're so fortunate, aren't you, to have your father, who was a former pro and a great coach, to sort of advise you. Because a lot of players do make that mistake when they're young. They're ambitious. They want to go and get the points, the prizes. Right. They're fulfilled by all these tournaments. But actually, right. it, it harms them in the long run. Yeah. Yeah, I think my dad does a great job of bringing me back down to earth sometimes (laughs) when I'm too high and, uh, you know, helps me think rationally, um, helps me make big decisions. And yeah, I think think it's really important. I think that guidance is key in this business because, you know, you have so many responsibilities as a professional athlete. It's important to be able to uh, delegate and have a great team around you who can help you with some of the smaller things. And I have a great team around me that's helped me a lot. And you're doing online classes, I believe, so you're going to try and finish your degree. What are you studying? Uh, I'm studying business at the University of Florida. Uh, I was actually in a different major. Uh, I was in finance for my first two years, and they didn't have an online option, so I had to switch over to business. But, yeah, I'm not taking any classes this summer, but I'll start back up in the fall. And will you manage to find enough time to complete it? (laughs) I guess we'll see. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to be very, very tough. Ben Shelton, it's been fascinating talking to you, and uh, we wish you all the best for the future. If it's going the way it's gone so far. It's going to be a very bright future. Thank you very much. What a lovely man, both on and off the court. Ben Shelton talking there with Candy Reid. It's interesting how he talks about short-term memory. I mean, surely all players need short-term memory, or as 
Alex Zimenor told us a couple of weeks ago, uh, memory like a goldfish so that you can instantly forget the points that go badly. That would be a very nice quality if everyone had that. Yeah, because the worst thing you can do when you're in the match, if you don't really feel like you're playing your best, is dwell on on that fact or dwell on previous points. And I was just doing, I was just commenting on a match yesterday, a women's match where, you know, they're now putting mics in the coaches' boxes so you can hear what the coach is saying, which is great feedback for us and for a lot of people to know, you know, what their what their voices for the player, what their comments are, and. Almost every time the coach spoke, it was about, okay, move on. You know, it's the next point. Let it go. Let it go. And which is great. That is excellent advice because that is the most valuable thing you can do. One, if you're not playing that great or one, if you feel like you just aren't feeling the ball, if you played a bad point, it's those that can let that go immediately. I feel like that do the best that are able to adapt so quickly to those circumstances. So short-term memory, yes, is probably one of the one of the best things you can you can have on the court if you have the capability of doing that. Well, I had a doubles partner who once used to say after every point, next point, next point. I got so sick of it, but he was absolutely right. <laughs> the other thing that I picked up from that Ben Shelton interview is that he said he wasn't focusing on results for a while, but just on his game going forward and playing freely. And I thought that's really interesting because so we know so many players in a match situation can tighten up a little bit. So if he's allowed himself at certain stages to play freely, I guess that means he will tighten up less when he gets into a big situation in a, in a tournament match. Well, that, that's another reason we talk about having how important it is to have that match play because... Nothing can replicate what you do on the practice court. You can practice as freely as you want, but if you're not playing freely in a match, um, then it's not going to change. So you have to be willing to be that carefree in a match over and over. And sometimes it can just be about like, okay, the willingness to be okay to make mistakes or be okay to fail in that moment. And the more you get to that stage, I do feel like the more consistently you can play freely on the court. And Ben Shelton against Tommy Paul is on Sunday. This is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. In the women's event, there have been some good stories. Pity poor Maria Sachary, whose slump hit her in the middle of her press conference after she'd lost in the first round. But what a week it's been for Caroline Wozniacki. She came back from a set down to beat Jennifer Brady, another player on the comeback trail. Jill, that's got to be the women's story of the week, hasn't it? It is. It's just it's just amazing to see her do so well so quickly. And you almost got to wonder if there was some inspiration from Svitolina there who came back after having a baby and has done exceptionally well um, right away, right out of the gate. So these, these two coming back and playing so well. And um, I mean, you could see you could see Wozniacki, especially when I was watching her play against Kvitova before she beat Brady. Was there was just that level of confidence in her eyes that just never went away. It was almost like she had never been away from the sport with the way she looked, with how intense she was on the court, and that and that was great to see. Wozniacki is showing that she's very much part of the present, despite us talking about her playing career in the past tense for the past three years. But one player whose career is definitely in the past tense is one of the legends of the U.S. Open. In fact, one of the legends of tennis, Pete Sampras. There's not a lot that hasn't been said about the five times U.S. Open singles champion. But when ATP Uncovered brought the fellow Americans Steve Johnson and Taylor Fritz together, this was before the two of them played each other in the U.S. Open first round this week. How much could they remember about the great Americans career? 
we've got a quiz about Pete Sampras, and you're taking on Taylor Fritz. How do you think you're going to do? I think it's really unfair, given that uh, Stevie is an age where he could have watched uh, Pete play growing up. Um, me, not so much. I was a little too young. Um, I'm a fan of Pete, so I think I know my stuff. How well do you know Pete's career? Well, we're going to find out. Okay. Depends on what questions you ask. His first name, last name, I'm good. What is Sampras's nickname? Pistol. Pistol Pete. All right, that one was pretty quick. What city was he born in? I don't know. I, I, I honestly don't know. Pretty sure California. No. Uh, he grew up in California, played at the Jack Kramer Club. DC. How many Nito ATP finals did Sampras win? Dude, that's, how am I supposed to know that? I'm gonna say three. Four? Five. <sighs> I stink. First Masters 1000 title that Sampras won, what city? Oh. I believe Indian Wells, 92. I don't think it's Indian Wells because I think there would have been more comparisons to it when I, I would have heard about it after I won Indian Wells. Um, I, I'm going to say Miami. It's the other one. Oh, uh, 50-50. <laughs> it's too good. In Cincinnati. I might just go goose egg. Uh, I got one, I guess. How many Grand Slams has Pete won? <laughs> I don't want to say something stupid. 14. There we go. Okay. Thank God. I needed a fluffer. I needed an easy one. I needed a dunk. I think when Roger broke the record, it was 15. So I think Pete has 14. Yes. Okay, thank God. Before Pete got to 14, who previously held the record for the most slams? Borg. Maybe Becker. Connors. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I just pass. Roy Emerson. I'm like starting to sweat now. I just, I might just leave the set. Do you know who Pete beat at Wimbledon to pass that record? Rafter. Pat Rafter. It was Pat Rafter. Okay. How many years did he finish year-end world number one? There we go. Six. Six. Who leads the head-to-head -head between Agassi and Sampras? I think Sampras leads it. I'm going to say Pete since we're doing a Pete. There we go. There we go. I took an educated guess on that one. Where did Sampras win his first major at? U.S. Open. U.S. Open. Do you want to guess the year? He was 18. I know he was 18. Now i got to do reverse math in my brain. 94. I want to say 90 or 91. Yeah, you're right, one of those. 91. No! 90? Yeah. I yeah. mean, shoot. Yeah. Sorry. Last tournament that he won? US Open. US Open. What year? 2004. 2001. Two. Because then Andy won it in 03. Who did he beat to win that 2002 US Open title? Agassi. Maybe Agassi? It was Agassi. Okay. True or false? Got 50 50 chance. Nice. 50. Okay. Love my chances here. Sampras is the only player to win every Wimbledon final he has ever played. False. It's true. It's true. I think I thought it was false, but it's true. Okay, along with Pete, who are the only two players who have won Grand Slams as a teenager in their 20s? and in their 30s. Rafa. Yep. Becker? Not Becker. Agassi? Not Agassi. Novak. McEnroe? Not McEnroe. Oh. Connors? No, I'm going to give you one more try at this. I think Australian legend. Uh. Emerson? No. Laver? No. Hewitt? No. Rafter? No. No, no, no. Kyrgios? Give up. Cut it. 
Cut it. Who was it? Kim Rosewell. Oh, okay. What's your message to Taylor? Like, that's some pretty good knowledge compared to me. You know, you Honestly, I'm embarrassed, so here we are. Okay, how do you think you did overall? I think I think I did actually, I did way better than I thought I would. I think you did too. Yeah, I'll take it. Oh come on, Stevie, you're far too hard on yourself. Nobody should be embarrassed about not remembering such detail, especially statistical detail. Jill, you're a couple of years younger than Pete, but you played most of your career at the same time. What stands out for you most about what you remember about playing with Pete Sampras? I think what stood out to me, I mean, I didn't really know him that well, but what stood out to me was, um, I actually, did, you actually didn't see him around the courts that much. He was kind of similar to Steffi Graf that way, where, you know, they, they got into the site and they got out. They got in, did their business and got out, did their practice, played their match, and they were never really hanging around that much. Um, so just ultra professional as far as quality over quantity, getting the job done. And I, and I remember both Pete and Steffi just being like, okay, they just almost needed like an hour on the court and that was it. But that hour was intense. Um, and they were just, they were just so spot on. And so for me, that was, it wasn't about hanging out and wasting energy and wasting time because being at the courts for long periods of time when you finish your practice or finish your match that can get very tiring and exhausting and they never allowed themselves to get to that stage they always kept themselves fresh and of course with Pete I mean all you think about is the big serve and the big return and the running forehand <laughs> I don't think he ever missed a running forehand there's a great quote from Pete from his induction speech at the International Tennis Hall of Fame when he said I was a guy who played tennis that's it. Yeah. And in a way, that sums him up. Although I do sometimes wonder whether he missed the fact that there was an ambassadorial role, although he behaved himself very well. I agree. Yes. OK, so that's it from this week's ATP podcast. But the US Open still has a lot of ground to be covered over the next week. Be sure to keep on top of all the actions throughout the week on the official website of the tournament, usopen.org. And of course, on the ATP website, atptour.com. I'm Chris Bowers. My thanks to Jill Krabus, and we look forward to the final podcast from the US Open when we'll come together after the men's singles final. Thanks, too, to you for listening. And in the meantime, enjoy the tennis. 